Our reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 17. It's in page 1085 of the Pew Bibles. And we're reading verses 1 to 26, the whole chapter. After this, said, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that you may know that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I reveal you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as that we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. They are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe, who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you, and you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me, given to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you're lo you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. The following phrase, cometh the hour, cometh the man is a, one of admiration, isn't it, for somebody who's either stepped up to the plate, perhaps they've overcome adversity and triumphed. And if I could slightly change this phrase this morning to refer to Jesus uh, off the back of chapter 17, it would be this, cometh the hour, cometh the God-man. Because for the last three chapters, Jesus is getting his disciples ready for his departure. Jesus has told them that the Holy Spirit will come and he'll teach you all things, reminding you of all that I have done. 
And then he says to him, you'll be going out into the world to make me known throughout the world. Jesus very soon will be arrested, he'll be beaten, he'll be trialed, hung on a cross, and killed. And even though Jesus knows this, he knows the rejection that is to come, he knows the pain and isolation, and he knows for certain the humiliation of a death at the cross. He's not sitting down here like someone on death row eating some slap-up meal, and he's not wallowing in the shadow of what is to come. Instead, what we have is, come at the hour, come at the God-man. Because as Jesus takes these moments in John 17 to pray to his Father in heaven, he takes a moment to pray for different individuals. Imagine that. In the context of facing what he's going to face in 18, 19, 20, and 21 of the chapters, he takes a moment to pray. Because come at the hour, come at the God-man. This is not the first recorded prayer of Jesus in John's gospel. In fact, in chapter 11, he prays. In chapter 12, he prays. They're there recorded for us. But in chapter 17, we have the third recorded prayer of Jesus. And there is a depth to it that is profound here. Because we are allowed into the relationship of the Godhead here. We are allowed into the mindset and desires and the person of Jesus as he prays. And I want this morning to look simply at this chapter in John's Gospel in a very simple three headings. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. And then Jesus prays for the church, future believers, in verses 20 to 26. Firstly then, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5. Keep an eye on it. Verse 1, Jesus looks towards heaven and prayed, the Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Over Friday night and yesterday, the Six Nations rugby took place. Where's Neil Groom? Congratulations, by the way, just Englishman in the house. Let's give it up for him. But without doubt, Wales and England had their hour, didn't they? It came in, they beat us well on Friday night. England then ruthlessly took apart their opponents on Saturday. Their hour had come. But here Jesus, for the last time, says, the hour has come to his Father. And that is referring to his death and resurrection. And at certain points in the gospel, Jesus explicitly says, my hour has not yet come. But since the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus has been journeying towards the hour of his death and resurrection. And we are so close here in chapter 17 that he says, the hour has come. And by the time Jesus finishes this prayer, we enter into the situation of chapter 18 where Jesus meets his betrayer and the mob and he's arrested. The hour has come, he says. Jesus knows what is ahead. He knows what is occurring, what's going to be pending. But notice what he asks for, even though the hour is coming in verse 1. He says, Father, will you glorify me? Tomorrow night, Chelsea play Manchester United in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. And I would love to hear this from the stands in Stamford Bridge tomorrow night. It's not going to happen, but (laughs) the idea of glory when a team wins is that they want all the praise, all the honor, all the accolades, the praise at the expense of other teams, isn't it? And United tomorrow night will look for that. 
And here in verse 1, Jesus is asking the Father, glorify me to honor him. Not so Jesus can be self-absorbed with the honor he receives, but look at what Jesus wants and why he wants to be glorified in verse 1, that your son may glorify you. There is a mutual glorifying between the Father and the Son. And this has been the pattern of Jesus' life throughout the gospel, where Jesus' whole life on earth has been to do the will of God obediently and in humble submission. And Jesus glorifies his Father, brought honor to him by completing, verse 4, the work that the Father has got him to do. And that work was that he was sent that he revealed God and his word to others, and it will have a climactic moment at the cross when Jesus died. Jesus' words and actions glorify his Father. And now, as Jesus faces the prospect of death on a cross, his prayer is, Father, glorify me. I've done your will. I've done your work. I'm about to complete it at the cross and the resurrection. Glorify me. Christians, this is the pattern of Jesus' life. He is cross and glory. That is Jesus' way. For Christians, it is the same. It is following the cross, and one day it will be glory. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. But what Jesus is asking for is not something new here to him, because verse 5, if you cast your eye down, it's a glory that Jesus enjoyed and knew with the Father before the creation of the world. In verse 5, we are taken back to before time and creation. We're transported back to when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, enjoyed honor and praise, glory with the Father. But we see that glory displayed in Jesus. But when he becomes incarnate, the Word becomes flesh. That glory isn't what it was before the creation of the world. There's an emptying of his glory so that he comes to this world. So whatever we see in the Gospels is a veiled glory, even though it is the glory, but it is nothing compared to what Jesus enjoyed before the creation of the world. And to get a sense of the honor and praise and glory that Jesus enjoyed and knew before the world began, listen to these words from from Revelation, where John describes a situation post-resurrection of Jesus, and it says this, Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and whoever lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say this, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and all things were created by your will. Do you see? Jesus, before the creation of the world, enjoyed unbridled glory, honor, obedience, submission to his will, and here he is asking that that would be restored after the cross. The honor and praise of Jesus post-resurrection gives us an idea of the glory that he enjoyed with his Father. This glory is not glory hunting as we see it. It is instead pure. It is other person-centered. It's not selfish. It's glory that is rightfully due to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as Creator, Lord, and Savior. And because Jesus does the will of God and completes the work of the Father by bringing him glory, we see in verses 2 and 3 that God has given Jesus authority over all people, 
so that he gives eternal life to all that God has given him. These verses show us, don't they, the importance and significance of our response to Jesus and his words. Because Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Our response, our attitude, our trust in Jesus matters because he gives eternal life. He has all authority over all people, but he also gives life eternal. Most of us, when the words eternal life are mentioned, probably think of life after death, and you're right to think that way. But verse 3 defines it more specifically. Do you see how it defines eternal life? Knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he sent. It is to know him personally, not just some facts or head knowledge about him, but it is to know God and Jesus personally. John Carson puts it this way. He says, eternal life is not so much eternal, everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. We can't earn that by being good or how we perform. God has glorified his son by giving him authority over all people, and he gives eternal life. And this takes us to our second heading this morning, Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. Having prayed for himself, Jesus now prays for his disciples. I want to draw out a few things from this passage, um, second half of it. The first is this, that Jesus has revealed God to his disciples, and the disciples have believed and accepted Jesus, verses 6 to 9. It's been a bit of a journey for them, hasn't it? If you've been with us here on a Sunday morning, you'll have seen that. They get some of it. They're totally a little bit dumb on another element of it. They just don't get what he's on about. He said, in a little while. What's he mean by a little while? But the fact is, they've accepted Jesus. Peter, further back in John's gospel, would say, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And so they've accepted Jesus. They've, they know he is God. They don't get it all, but they've accepted him. And verses 6 to 9 are spelling out that they are God's. And this is exactly the response of the gospel is seeking or eliciting from people like you and I who read the gospel that will investigate the life and teaching of Jesus. And so we'll come to know that he is God, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you'll have eternal life. But now these original disciples have the task of bringing Jesus' words to the world around them. And so verse nine, Jesus prays for them. And he says to them, do you see it there? I pray for them. But look at what Jesus prays for them. End of verse 11. I want to pick out a few things. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. If you're a a parent or a grandparent, I think you might get the sentiment of this verse. Because if you have young children or grandchildren, you realize that they're vulnerable, don't you? You realize that they're gullible. (laughs) They don't realize all the dangers that are out there or, or even see the things that might be coming. Even when they're teenagers, they still don't. And it's the same idea here for Jesus and his fledgling followers. They are his. They've been given the words of Jesus to go out into the world, which is hostile to the claims that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And he prays that God will protect them so that they may be one, united, as the Father and the Son are one. This is one in purpose, not being, all right? The Father and the Son are one in love and purpose and will, and Jesus prays that the disciples are protected, that they'll be one in love for one another, purpose and will. 
as they proclaim the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Protect them and make them one in purpose and will. And that's what you find with the gospel. As you go into Acts and into the New Testament, they are one, aren't they? They're one in purpose and will. But the second thing he prays from is verse 15. Jesus prays that they're not taken out of the world, but that the Father protects them from the evil one. These disciples, after the resurrection, will be given the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded them. They were going into a world which was not their home. They were going to be hated, just like their master was. Back in chapter 15, Jesus warned them, you'll be threatened. People will think they're doing you a service if they kill you. And Jesus is praying not that they be taken out of the world, like some obscure cult or some faith group that some of them do, but rather that you wouldn't take them out, but keep them in the world. And if you're keeping them in the world, Father, well then protect them from the evil one. He asks to be protected from Satan. In American football, you have a line of players that protect the ball and the quarterback. I think there's a picture coming up of them. They're, they're enormous. Like your man's muscles on the left-hand side are probably bigger than my thighs, I imagine. You know? <laughs> and what these boys do is they protect the quarterback behind them and the ball coming through and players. So they'll block. All right? They're often called the refrigerators. You know, they're just there and they just stand and block these boys out. And that's the idea. They're a defensive line here. And Jesus here in these verses, verse 15, is asking his father for that defensive line to protect these disciples from the evil one, Satan. And you've got to ask yourself, why would he do that? Because the evil one will do anything to destroy the work of God. He will do anything to distract and sidetrack God's messengers and also those seeking God in his word. It's fascinating that Peter, who denied Jesus who fell asleep when Jesus told him to pray and not that he wouldn't fall into temptation, would later write these words about the evil one, the devil. He said this, be self-controlled and alert. Here's Peter writing this, after he had denied Jesus, after he'd fallen asleep, after he'd fell into temptation. And he says this, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is the work of the devil, to destroy the work of God to destroy the people of God. That is his mission. And Jesus prays for protection from the evil one. Thirdly, in verses 17 to 19, Jesus prays that they would be sanctified. Do you see it? And sanctified means consecrated or set apart, made holy. In the Old Testament, the priests were set apart for the task of serving God and his people. The same idea of this word is given to Jesus as he's set apart to serve God. And here in John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays that the disciples will be set apart, made holy. This sanctifying work, do you see it in the scriptures, is done through the words of Jesus, by the truth, the word of God. Don Carson again says the following about being sanctified through the word. He says this, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after him without learning to live in conformity with the word he has graciously given. Jesus, knowing this, prays for his disciples that they would be set apart by the word of God, that it will be so infiltrated in their hearts and minds that they'll be made holy. And that's what we get within the New Testament letters. And when the Spirit comes to these disciples, he'll use the word to set them apart for the task of making Jesus known. 
the world generally suppresses or denies the word of truth. But these followers of Jesus will make it known despite the opposition and hatred that they face. So Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples. And lastly, our third heading this morning is this. Jesus prays for the church, future believers at this moment in time. Jesus, before going to the cross to redeem those who are his, prays for all those who will believe in his name in the future. See it in verse 20? I pray also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message. As the disciples went and proclaimed Jesus, told who he was, what he had done, people believed in the message. Today is still the same. As we go out this week, as we read the scriptures for ourselves, as we encourage others to read Jesus' message, Jesus is still calling people to himself. Perhaps you're here this morning and you recall a time when you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or perhaps you grew up in that knowledge of him and have always known him as Lord and Savior, really. There hasn't been the magic moment. But the wonderful thing is, get this, Jesus prayed for you before going to the cross. He prayed for all future believers. And look more closely at what he prayed for you and for For all who have and will believe, even today, he prays five things very briefly. That they may be one, verse 21. The unity or oneness here is not just this fuzzy thing, a nice idealism, but rather it is oneness or unity in the belief in in the message of Jesus. This is what brings true unity, oneness. If I put it this way to you, Christian unity is is, is an idealism. We'd love to be united Here Jesus prays that his future followers would be one as they believe in Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son were one in their desire and purpose to reveal to a fallen nation redemption. And so unity and oneness is only found among those who believe in Jesus and his word. The message of Jesus, the gospel, and oneness are linked. You can't separate the two. And so if you look for Christian unity as a church, it has to be found in our belief in Jesus and the gospel, and that's what brings the oneness, the unity of it. The second thing Jesus prays is that future believers may be in us. Do you see it? Verse 21, in the Godhead. And this takes us back to the imagery of the vine, where Jesus says, remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So here is Jesus before the cross, praying that they'll believe in him, future believers, but also praying that they will continue in dependence on him. The dependence of God's church on Jesus shows the world who Jesus is, that he is sent Son of God. Do you see the importance of it? Our oneness, our dependence on him will show the world, those who do not believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the sent Son of God to redeem his people. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how the unity of believing in Christ, how the unity of being dependent on him, actually has a witness to the world? That is why some, even this morning, who have never been in church before, will have a sense that these people are a bit different in all our frailty. That they'll have a sense that, you know what, there's something about those people 
And what is it? That they believe in Jesus and that they're dependent on him. We're fragile, we're frail in doing it, but that is what Jesus prays here. Thirdly, he prays that the church will be complete in unity or perfected. Do you see it? Verse 23, he wants us to grow in the gospel, in knowing this gospel, in its depth, maturing in it, maturing in our knowledge and love of God, so the world again will know that Jesus is sent and loves his people. Fourthly, Jesus asks that those who believe in him will see his glory, the glory that he had before the creation of the world. When you read the scriptures, you see the glory of Jesus, his character and nature, his ways. But if you're a Christian here today, what you see is veiled. It's like looking through the glass that is frosted. You see bits of it, and you go, wow, but it's veiled. We see glimpses of Jesus' glory in his word because he's revealed it to us through it. But the following verses captured the veiled idea that we're talking about, but also the promise that one day Jesus' prayer will be answered when we see his glory face to face. Listen to these wonderful verses from Corinthians. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Or take 1 John where it says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus prayed for you and I that we would see his glory. He prayed for oneness. He prayed for dependence. Lastly, verse 26, Jesus asks that he will continue to make himself known. For those of us here this morning who are believers, Christians, this verse should encourage you that Jesus will continue to make himself known to you. How? Through his very word, so that the love of God may be in us. Jesus prays these things for you and me for those who will believe just before the cross. Cometh the hour, cometh the man who prayed for himself, who prays for his disciples, who prays for the church, you and I. Such love for God, such love for others like his disciples and those who are his, such dependence on the Father. Application-wise, you can use these prayers as a model to pray for others. Oneness, dependence in Christ, maturing in the gospel, continue asking God to reveal. But get this and take heart, that Jesus who prayed for you before he faced the cross in the past, that that Jesus continues to pray for you today. Listen to the following verses. If you're a sinner, this is what he says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Wonderful. Or take Romans. Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
Jesus sits at the right hand of God, enjoying and sharing the glory that he had with him before the creation of the world. And if you are his, he is still praying for you. He is interceding for you. And all those who will yet put their trust in him, he is praying. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That if he prayed this before the cross, what do you think he's doing now today? He is praying that you will have one in belief in Jesus Christ. He is praying that you will be dependent on him. He's praying that you'll be mature and growing in the knowledge and love of God. And one day he is praying that you will see him face to face, unveiled glory. That is what he's praying for you. So Christians here this morning, if you think you're not going well, there is one who's interceding for you. If you're growing in the maturity and love of God, praise him because he's praying for you. If he's continuing to reveal himself to you, thank him because he's praying that that is what will happen. And one day you will see his glory all unveiled, unbridled, as we meet him face to face. This prayer is packed full of the Godhead's relationships, but it also tells us what Jesus desires for his people and in turn what we should desire for our lives as we remember that he prays and pleads for us before the throne of God. Let me pray for us as we continue. Father God, we thank you this morning that your son's life was all about bringing glory to you. Father, thank you that he shares that glory with you even today, before the creation of the world even began. Father, we thank you that Jesus, before his death, prays for the disciples that they'll be protected, that they'll be one. Father, thank you that we have the words that you spoke to them in the scriptures this morning before us. And Father, today we thank you that Jesus prays for the future believers, the church. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for us. Thank you, Lord, for praying that we would believe in you, that we would be dependent on you, that we would grow and mature in our knowledge of the gospel and its depth. And thank you that one day you're asking your Father that they will see, that we will see your glory. Father, thank you today that your Son still intercedes to us. And Father, we thank you that he is still praying that we will grow in our maturity and in our knowledge and love of your word and of the gospel. Lord, we pray today, no matter where we are at with you, we thank you that your Son intercedes. And we pray that this passage will spur us on in our prayer life, but also our awareness and our love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Lord, bless us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.